0: Hi, One Goal community. It's Elaine Boyd, Pelotonia's event and volunteer operations coordinator. Since 2008, Pelotonia has raised over $236 million for innovative cancer research. And thanks to our partners, 100% of those funds have gone directly to research at the James at Ohio State. Together, we will see an end to cancer. To get involved in our One Goal, visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org, or click on the link in the episode notes. This podcast is powered by Pelotonia. To learn more about our goal ten cancer, visit pelotonia.org or see the link in the show notes. Since that moment, like I said, I've always just kind of wanted to help other people, help heal other people. I think I got a quick you know, course on you know, what was important to me.
1: Welcome to One Goal, a storytelling podcast from Pelotonia a passionate community dedicated to funding innovative cancer research. I'm your host and Chief Operating Officer of Pelotonia, Joe Apgar. Your journey with us to the finish line begins now. Pelotonia is powered by an unstoppable community, and it's through research we will see an end to cancer. We want to thank our major funding partners for making all of this possible. The American Electric Power Foundation, Huntington, the L Brands Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santulli. If you've spent any length of time around the Pelotonia community, or if you're a reality TV fan, you've probably heard the name Ethan Zahn. Over the years, Ethan has been an incredible speaker at Pelotonia events, has participated as a rider, and has been a friendly face helping check-in survivors during the Pelotonia weekend. A true legend. Wherever he goes, his outgoing, vibrant, and magnetic personality almost instantly creates an exciting and welcoming environment. This is just one of the many reasons we're thrilled to have him as part of the Pelotonia community. Another reason is that Ethan is an incredibly empathetic individual. He's someone who knows how cancer impacts a person and their family. He also knows, in a few different ways, what it means to be a survivor. I sat down with Ethan and discussed his story for this episode titled, Old School Survivor.
0: I am currently calling you from the middle of the woods in New Hampshire, but I did not grow up here. I grew up uh, outside Boston and, you know, my entire childhood was pretty much revolving around soccer and sports (laughs) uh you know i was the youngest of three brothers and so they would just take me into the backyard and just pummel soccer balls in my face so of course i became a goalkeeper (laughs) and uh, yeah that's how it works so when you're the youngest one and you're a little chubby they just throw you in goal and uh you know, my whole thing with, with growing up playing soccer is I matured a lot faster than all my friends. So like I've been 5'10 since sixth grade. I have like had like a full mustache in grade school. Wow. So like, yeah. So they're like, let's stick that old guy in goal. And I towered over everyone else, um, but people soon caught up with me <laughs> in terms of height and you know physical makeup so 5'10
1: in sixth grade is absolutely incredible I feel like you know when you you see like the Little League World Series on TV and there's always like the investigation about like the one superstar kid who's like 6'4 throwing 90 miles an hour so that was you that was me I
0: was like the mini Tom Selleck you know Jewish guy in goal with glasses and braces and like who is
1: that guy where is he from Did he drive himself here? (laughs) So let's talk about sort of the experience with your father, going through cancer, and you're 14 and witnessing that. And I mean, what of that do you remember?
0: I remember a lot of it. At that age, you know, very you know young, impressionable. Both my brothers were away at college, so it was me and my mom at home, you know, taking care of my dad, which is tough for any young person. Sure. And, you know, I just, uh, you know, my mom was good. She kind of hid a little bit of the the dark side from me. And, uh, but you know, I was in and around it all the time. You know, he wasn't strong enough to go upstairs. So I'd be the one like waking up in the middle of the night, carrying to the bathroom, you know, holding his hand and head when he's, you know, throwing up and stuff like that. So that was traumatic for me. Growing up, my only connection to cancer was through my dad. And, you know, in 1989, a stage two colorectal diagnosis term terminal, and, you know, like, you know, research, you know, this is what's all Peloton's about, research wasn't available back then, and I just always think, like, if my dad was diagnosed now, he'd probably still be alive. Since that moment, like I said, I've always just kind of wanted to help other people, help heal other people. I think I got a quick, you know, course on, you know, what was important to me at an early age, what wasn't important to me, And I quickly learned that, like, it was the community around me. It was my friends from soccer team, my friend from, you know, Temple, I'm Jewish. You know, it's like the community. They all supported me and my two brothers and my mom. And they kind of reinforced our values in a time when we felt completely alone. And, uh, you know, none of my other friends had a parent that passed away. So I was like the only one. And just trying to navigate that whole crazy situation at a young age was tough for me.
1: Do you remember what you guys talked about, if you talked about anything, if you didn't talk about anything.
0: Well, to be honest, I remember what I didn't talk to my dad about. It's going to sound weird, but as like a 14-year-old boy, like I don't ever remember like saying I love you to my dad. You know, maybe I said it in passing or it was at a birthday, I love you dad, but like I never like had the conversation to let him know like listen, I love you you're know, my father and, you know, Yeah. thank you for coming to my soccer games and, you know, driving me around and just being the best father ever. I just, I never had that opportunity and I missed that chance. And so that's stuck with me for my whole life. Probably, yeah, <laughs>
1: probably some of the reasons
0: for, for my issues in life anyway. But, um, you know, that for me, just, I tell people things now, like I am fairly open book with a lot of people because I feel like nothing is more empowering than the truth. And I often talk to some folks that are caregivers and they ask like, you know, what can we do as a caregiver? I'm like, well, I personally believe, like I said, just be truthful with the ones that you love. Because often the things that a fighter is feeling, you know, fear, sadness, um, you know, disappointment, confusion is the same exact that the ca- things that the caregivers are feeling. But if you don't ever talk about it, then you're never going to know and you can't, you know, take the steps you need to come together to help you remain alive and stay healthy. So that's my advice to everyone out there. Listen, be truthful with your doctors and care team, with the people that love you, the people that are surrounding with you, because it can only open the lines of communication and help everyone, you know, take care of each other better through this, you know, difficult journey.
1: So you went on to play
0: uh, soccer in college, right? Mm-hmm. I went to a small Division three school. It wasn't necessarily like a soccer powerhouse. However, after school. Um, you know, I traveled around for a little while trying to find my feet and I ended up in Hawaii, of all places. I actually minored in marine biology and so after college I'm like, where is there a lot of water? So I'm like, Hawaii. So I moved to Hawaii. I'm bound to find a job. Didn't work out. Ended up like cleaning beds and toilets in a youth hostel for about six months. I couldn't find a job. But then there's this open tryout for a new professional soccer team in Hawaii called the Hawaii Tsunami. And so I went down there, tried out as a walk-on, and I made it. All right, this is gonna be my path. This is what I wanna do. I wanna to try to make a go at playing professional soccer.
1: How long were you playing professional soccer in, I guess, in Hawaii, and what was the, what was the league? So
0: back then it was Major League Soccer, then it was USL. Um, was the second division there. Uh, so I was playing in the USL, and I played for the Hawaii Tsunami for about a year and a half. Then I switched teams, um, and I started playing for a team called the um, Cape Cod Crusaders in Cape Cod, Massachusetts.
1: Okay, so you went from Hawaii back to the Northeast. Yes,
0: I did. You know, um, the team in Hawaii, you know, they weren't financially doing that great. And so all of our away games, you know, you were hopping on a six-hour flight to, like, the California area. And so it was just the team itself didn't survive. Then I moved to the Cape Cod Crusaders and started playing there. And when I was playing for the Crusaders, I met a guy by the name of Kirk Friedrich and he uh, had just played in Zimbabwe. And so he's like, went back for another season. And I'm like, he said, you gotta come over here. It's absolutely incredible. We need a goalkeeper. You gotta come to Zimbabwe. And so I'm like, sure. In Africa, and Zimbabwe, I mean, we were getting 30,000, 40,000 people a game. Oh, wow. You know, it's their passion. They save up all their money all week just so they can buy a ticket to the match that weekend. And so for me to kind of get that feel, the excitement, walking into a stadium with people like this, dreaming for you was just uh, something that I always wanted to experience, but I couldn't get that here in the United States. So what year
1: was this that you went over to Zimbabwe?
0: This was 1999 and 2000, Y2K, baby.
1: I'm curious how you ended up going from soccer to ending up on a TV show. Right. And like, how do you make that jump? And how does that opportunity present itself in your life?
0: Well, you know, I returned from Zimbabwe and to continue playing in the United States. You know, my time over there, I wasn't getting much playing time friends had left. So I came back to play in the United States. And, um, you know, I, I guess I could say my career was spiraling out of control. <laughs> I wasn't, uh, I was bouncing around team to team. I just couldn't get a starting spot. And so I just, I kind of hung up the boots and I started to coach. So I coached at a division one college in New Jersey called Fairleigh Dickinson University you know, staying in and around the sport. And while I was, you know, coaching, I was also looking for some real work, a full-time job in New York City, got a job doing some advertising. But then I got fired. So here I was, bored in New York City with nothing to do. And I looked at my roommate, like, what do you want to do today? Like, well, we can make a video for Survivor. I'm like, all right. <laughs> there may or may not have been some beers involved. I have no idea. I can't remember. <laughs> but uh, we basically, it was something to do and occupy one day in New York City. And so we made this video to send in to Survivor and I was supposed to make a video for my buddy and my buddy was supposed to make a video for me, but we ran out of time for him and we only sent in my video and then obviously I get off the show. 39 days, 16 people, one Survivor. So it was a joke. It was just literally, it was a whim, we were bored. What are we gonna do today? Let's make a video for Survivor.
1: Your buddy doesn't even get to submit his, his exactly. video. I mean, yeah. restore it
0: to be on Survivor, you don't necessarily know where you're going. So I didn't know where I was going until I was on the layover um, in Amsterdam when I saw my next ticket and it said Nairobi. So I'm like, oh, hey, we're going to be playing this game someplace in Africa. So we went to Kenya, and from Kenya, then we got shot up to the Shaba National Reserve where they started filming the whole series. How but yeah, long? it was it was a total... You just don't know. You just kind of give over your... <laughs> give over all your... Uh, you know restrictions and ability to plan and you just give it to them and they just do what they want and tell you what they want when they want.
1: I assume you don't really pack much to go on Survivor. You're allowed
0: two t-shirts, two pair of shorts, two pair of socks, and a pair of shoes. Oh, wow, that's it. And a hat. That was back then. Now you're allowed less. Now you're only allowed one shirt, one pair of pants, two pair of shoes, and a pair of socks. And a hat. So for me the hardest part was the mental side of things. Because going into it, I was 27 years old, I was super fit, you know, I, I felt comfortable socially, like, you know, speaking with people and interacting that way. But the mental side of things, kind of the whole manipulation and backstabbing and lying that just was very difficult for me to overcome because survivors a game where you need to make friends with these people but friendships based on trust and you can't trust anyone because the whole point of the show is to vote everyone off like so right. you want to be the last person standing I kind of changed my strat like I had every intention to be an evil backstabbing slimy little pig to get ahead in the game but when I got out there and you like take away food and you take away water you're tired you're hungry like your true person comes out and so for me that just wasn't who I was and so I said I'm gonna try to play this game like I play my life and for me like the personal relationships being a part of the community being a leader being selfless like all those skills that are, or, or values that I learned growing up, I tried to apply within the game of the survivor. And I'm kind of known as the nice guy, right? I got through the game without getting any votes against me, without telling any horrible lies, without hurting anyone's feelings. And that's because I aligned with other people who enjoy doing that stuff. And therefore, you know, that was kind of the team I built around me to help me get ahead in the game. Like I was the assistant coach out
1: there. Three
0: votes, Ethan. Ethan, you need just one more. The winner of Survivor Africa.
1: Obviously, you end up
0: winning. Sorry, if anyone hasn't watched it yet, I just spoil the ending. I win.
1: Yeah, I think I feel like it's uh, it's it's past the time of spoiling. (laughs) You think?
0: Nineteen years? Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's 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 fascinating. It's a fascinating game, and this is a game that touches on every part of you as a human being: mental, physical, social, spiritual, environmental, financial. You know, I, I always make the comparison to cancer. In the sense that cancer is something that touches every single part of you. Same with Survivor. I and mean, obviously ones you're playing for your life and one you're playing for a million bucks. But for me, you know, that that's that's something that's relatable to those who've been through cancer.
1: It's just mm-hmm. something that just knocks you out, knocks every part of you. Seven years later, you get diagnosed with cancer. Mm. I guess describe the feeling leading up to getting diagnosed. So this is in uh, in
0: 2008. I embarked on a uh, world record-breaking dribble of a soccer ball from Boston, Massachusetts, to Washington D.C. Uh, to raise awareness for a charity that I'm involved with called Grassroots Soccer. So when I was in Washington D.C. at the in the end, and around De- uh, November, we're finishing on December first, end of November, I tore my ACL, and um, so. I was recovering from my acl and i was on a lot of pain medicine and then i got extremely itchy and so i just thought it was like okay it's the pain meds it's something's going on with my knee whatever i let it persist and i tried every pill cream potion lotion known to man but the itch would not go away and so then you know i went to a doctor a dermatologist and they couldn't figure it out and moved on to like a hematologist and then that's kind of and then a swollen lymph node popped out of my neck And they found a six centimeter by 12 centimeter mass in my chest. And I was diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma called CD20 positive Hodgkin's lymphoma.
1: And that was the ultimate gut punch. I mean, you had that came out of nowhere for you. Totally sideswiped. You know, I knew something was
0: wrong with me and it was probably pretty bad because like it took four months to get to the final diagnosis. So I knew some, but I was, I was happy to get a diagnosis because then I could start chemotherapy, which was going to get rid of the itch. And the itch was the thing that was just literally destroying me. Um, you know, it was so bad. That was my, my big presenting symptoms with night sweats and loss of weight. But like, I couldn't even wear clothes towards the end. It was wow. that bad, I couldn't shower. Anytime I did want to put on clothes, I'd have to create a little barrier with super thick like face cream all over my body to protect my body from my clothes. And I'd be sitting on my couch, like couldn't, my arms couldn't touch each other. My legs couldn't touch each other. So it was just like, cause it would just cause the itch. So that was tor- that was a, tormented me for months. So I was happy to get the diagnosis on one side of things. On the other side of things, I was scared shitless. (laughs) You know, like I said, my only connection to cancer was through my dad and he passed away. And so I made the choice to go public and I documented my journey on people.com with video blogs and articles. And I look for every opportunity to share my story. And so for me, you know, it was a kind of a little bit of a cathartic distraction from the reality of what was going on in my life and it made me feel good you know focusing on the plight of other people helps you heal
1: you get diagnosed with cancer 2009 what was the what was the bottom for you
0: the bottom was going through chemo radiation and an autologous stem cell transplant and that was great the doctors felt The cancer is in remission, we're good to go. I start living my life, I build myself back up, like the invisible scars, the dump truck's full of uncertainty, they're waning. I go play, I do Amazing Race, another reality show. Um, I travel around the world to try to win that thing. And then I get back from that and my legs started getting itchy again. And I was diagnosed again um, with lymphoma getting the news that the cancer returned
1: was deflating exponentially more difficult than the first time around. I think I'm remembering this right, you know, from our conversations, but uh, one of your brothers sort of stepped in, right? So after I relapsed, you know, um, the whole
0: goal was to get me back into remission so I could get a second stem cell transplant, this time an allogeneic one, which is where you use someone else's stem cells, a donor to, to use their stem cells. So I was freaking out because as a uh, person of ethnic descent, like I said, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, it reduces your chance of finding a match on the registry by about 25%. So I knew I needed a transplant. I knew I needed a donor because my stem cells weren't working. And if I didn't have a blood-related donor within my brothers, I'd have to go to the registry. So that was a huge fear. And there's a little bit of a lapse between when you get diagnosed and when you actually find out if your brothers are a match. And so I have two older brothers Lee's the middle guy, Leonard's the oldest, and so the doctors, they don't tell you who, the, if there is a match and who the match would be because they don't want you treating one brother different than oh, the other. Yeah. <laughs> like, so my whole family, extended family, we are placing bets. I'm like, is it going to be Lee? Is it going to be Leonard? Is it going to be Lee or Leonard? Cause the doctors told us one of them is a match and will be good for your transplant, but they wouldn't tell us which one. Cause like, if it's me and I knew which brother, like I literally probably wouldn't let him leave the house and make him wear a helmet all the time, <laughs> eat healthy foods. Like, <laughs> like you are my lifeline. If you die, I die. So like, don't leave the house, please. Uh, but I think that's why they do it. And uh, Lee ended up being a 10 for 10 match and Leonard was like a zero for 10 match. Oh, wow. And so, uh, you know, we're looking, I'm like, mom, you sure Leonard's related to me? Like, <laughs> is there something you need to tell us? You know, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, but but uh, it was funny because uh, Lee ended up being, being the match and was generous enough. And obviously, you know, he's my brother. So he was willing to, you know, donate his stem cells to save my life, which was pretty awesome. As close to my brothers and my family that I was, you know, they were a little bit too close. I was surrounded by so many people that loved me so much, but I've never felt so alone in my life. So for me, I kind of needed to find a resource outside my immediate family. Um, And, you know, I came across this incredible organization called Immerman Angels, which is a peer-to-peer you know support uh organization where they'll match you up with a cancer survivor that has been through the exact same thing that you've been through in state of life. and so you can connect with them you can communicate with them they are your mentor angel and they can help you through the the, the dark times and so i met this guy named gavin Gavin Robertson, which is an incredible guy. He was 35 years old. He had a girlfriend. He was sporty. You know, he's just like me. And that's why they paired me up with him. And so he helped me through, you know, my journey with cancer. And we made a deal. I said, if I stay alive, then you have to run the New York City Marathon with me. So we went through it all—nine, ten months—and then a whole another, you know, you know, twelve months of me training to get ready for that thing. And we met for the first time at the starting line of the New York City Marathon.
1: Oh, so you hadn't met in person? You you were just on the phone, on the
0: phone, or email, over email. You know, this is 2009. There wasn't Skype and Zoom back then. So we were texting, we were emailing, uh, calls on the phone. And so I actually met him for the first time in person at the starting of the New York City Marathon, and we ran the marathon together. It's incredible. But having that person in your life for me was, it was a lifeline. It really was. And just to be able to connect with someone who's been through what you've been through and they stayed alive, gave me hope. Um, and I, I just needed him by my side because everyone in my immediate family and friend group just couldn't, couldn't relate to me in that way.
1: Yeah. Someone asked the You know, maybe the silly questions or the stupid questions, too, or the questions you don't want to ask your, you know, your mom and where you don't want to ask the doctor in front of people. And, uh, yeah, I think that's where, you know, I mean, Immerman Angels, amazing organization that um, really provides mentors and and pairs them with mentees. But it's also just the basic sort of premise of sharing your story. And there's someone else that's going to benefit from it. You may or may not ever know about it. You know how you've how your stories touch someone, but uh, you know I just know that 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 happens. I want to talk about Pelotonia, and I think the thing, and I I still talk to people to this day. What people remember is that you rode, Hmm. like, and like that you connected with hundreds of people along the ride, and like people remember Ethan rode, like how cool is that? Like Ethan's part of the community rode. Um, I always thought that was just like something really, really special. I don't know that you knew the gravity of riding, hmm. you know, because a lot of speakers come in and speak and, and they leave and and that's okay. But, um, you were just kind of along for the ride and said, yeah, I'll ride like, let's do this. And you rode and. <laughs> well, I'm I'm I remember for showing up and
0: like instantly feeling part of the community, which for now, like you know, there are people that have been riding for many years with you guys, and you know, I just felt instantly connected, which was an awesome feeling to have. Just when I got there, did not want to leave and wanted to keep coming back year after year, which you have.
1: You have, you've come yeah. back, you know, at least to every physical ride we've had. Yes, um, I expect to see you back this year too. Yes, I mean,
0: this last ride was tough because I don't know if you know this, but when was it august something what?
1: yeah it's beginning of august every yeah year.
0: i had returned from survivor playing this most recent season of survivor season oh, 40 right. two weeks prior to that i was probably 145 150 pounds you know like it was but it, it was it was a struggle for me to ride this time harder than it probably would have been if i had chemotherapy i mean
1: there's so many things in your life, being on survivor, being alone, being sort of malnourished, all of these things, and going through cancer that actually are really relevant to what we've all gone through as a country, as a world, um, isolation, all of those things. Like what's gotten you through, you know, the last year uh, with COVID and, and, and the pandemic going on and like, how have you drawn on your experiences to, you know, Trying to not make it so terrible. So for me, you know,
0: I always talk about just the concept of acceptance. (laughs) I know it might sound simple and and trivial. However, you know, when I was sick, I didn't want to admit that there's this cancer inside my body trying to kill me, but I had to. I had to in order to move on to the next phase of this journey, which was like I needed to map out how I wanted to live the next phase of my life. But if you aren't able to accept it, then you're just going to live in this denial phase. And so for me, it was my advice to folks is to kind of try to accept what's going on in the world in the current situation that you're in. And then you can move to that next phase, which is like, how do I want to plan how I'm going to live in isolation for the next six, 12 months? So you have to do that in order to map out what your life will look like, because I think there was just a lot of... um, if you're living in, in denial and the world is uncertain, it leads to this anxiety of kind of trying to predict what may or may not happen in the future. You know, you're wishing what you're wishing life was what it was like in the past. You can't figure out what's going to happen in the future. And you're so focused on both of them. You're missing what's going on right now. It's just that whole concept of remaining present. Like you can't change what happened to the past. You can change your connection and your relationship to the past. You can't predict the future. You can set an intention for the future. So what left is here is remaining present. So for me to remain present, to focus on what's happening today, whether I, when, when I was in treatment, I did the same exact thing, doing the same exact thing now, and then to accept what's going on and then just being able to uh, make some plans.
1: I think, I think the concept of acceptance is, and like you said, it's, it, it actually seems overly simple, but it's, I think it's a pretty deep and complicated sort of, you know, path to put yourself through, but, um, and easier said than done, easier (laughs) said than done, but spot on. I mean, that is exactly what needs to happen. I mean, in a diagnosis and just any, any bad situation is to, you know, you can't not accepting it just clouds your judgment. Yeah. Acceptance is the first
0: step to controlling anything you can't control, you know? And then on the other side of acceptance is hope and resiliency. You know, so you can if you can't imagine yourself in this new situation, you're not going to be able to get there. And that's what denial is. So if you accept this new situation, then you can actually work towards what you want to be.
1: What's next for you? Uh, Like what's next for Ethan?
0: You know, I'm involved with, uh, you know, a charity T-shirt line called Old School Survivor. And that's been really fun for my wife and I to do this past year. We, you know, basically, when I hit five years in remission, I made this shirt called, like, I'm an old school survivor from the cancer thing. And then the whole Survivor TV show came along again, and there happened to be this old school, new school theme that just, appeared out of nowhere on this season of survivors so i'm like oh let's resurrect this old school survivor yeah. thing and i started selling t-shirts online and it's been really fun really successful and so uh i'm gonna keep going at it people seem to like it and uh you know the show's always going to be on there's always going to be cancer survivors and so i'm hoping this old school survivor thing becomes a little bit uh you know a little bit fun for people to get involved with
1: Thanks to Ethan Zahn for the great conversation and the inspirational energy he provides to our community. If you're interested in an old-school Survivor mug, visit shoppelotonia.org or click the link in the episode notes. Another thanks to our major funding partners for making all of this possible. The American Electric Power Foundation, Huntington, the L Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santulli. On the next episode of One Goal
0: well they know going into it that they're required to ride and they're actually very excited about it they're excited about fundraising they're excited about day of participation when maria and i were thinking about what do we do this year so we both came out with the idea that maybe we should celebrate our success
1: this has been one goal a storytelling podcast from pelotonia i'm your host cancer survivor and coo of pelotonia joe apgar Interview and production scheduling by our marketing and communications duo, Emily Smith and Gabby Blauer. One Goal is carefully crafted and produced at the studios of Wessler Media by Vince Tornero. Mastering by Joey Gerwin at Oran Judeo. Special thank you to all of our guests for being willing to share their inspiring journeys for this podcast. Also, please rate, review and subscribe so you can get seasons one and two as well as future episodes. If you want to learn more about the Pelotonia community and how you can make an impact on cancer research, see the link in the show notes or visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org.